Hey, fiends. Uh, we're so excited to share this interview with you, so I'll make this quick. Uh, I didn't do the usual editing that I normally do to tighten up our episodes because we really wanted to just let you all experience our conversation with Don Glute naturally without a lot of edits. Uh, also, we had this chat over the phone, so the sound is a little bit different than what you're used to from us, but I promise you you're going to want to hear this. We had so much fun, and we think you will too. Take it away, spooky piano man. <laughs> feel it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Hello, and welcome once again to the Frankencast. I'm the mad scientist, Anthony Bowman. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm joined as always by... The vanilla monster that is Eric Velasquez. My pronouns are also he, him. And we're joined by another special guest. Yes, we're joined today by Mr. Donald F. Glute, the uh, writer and director of Tales of Frankenstein. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, hi. Uh, it's good to be on your show. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. So uh, um, <laughs> I'm sure we'll have pl- plenty of things to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> Um, so one thing we, we always kind of talk about with, with Frankenstein fans is like, what is it about Frankenstein? Like, I know, you know, you were making movies as a kid even. So clearly Frankenstein has been a big part of your life, uh, from the early days. So, so what is it about Frankenstein that, that kind of drew you in? You know, I, I really don't know. Um, well, I sort of, I have a guess, but I'll get to that. I'll tell you how I discovered it. And, and it, it's been like a, uh, uh, a source of extreme interest to me ever since. I was about, oh, maybe six years old. And my mother, my grandmother, and I were at the local movie theater uh, in Chicago where I grew up. In fact, it's the same theater where I had the premiere of um, Tales of Frankenstein. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. That was a, that was Blood Scarab. But it was, a, it was a theater I grew up in. And we were watching a movie called Tap Roots, which was uh, which had Boris Karloff in it, and playing uh, an, as we used to say back then, an Indian character, American Indian, Native American, whatever you want to say. Anyway, my mother, when he came on the screen, my mother nudged me, and she said, "Oh, that's Boris Karloff. Uh, he played Frankenstein." And I said, "And I'd never heard of either of them, Frankenstein <laughs> or Boris Karloff." So, but then that. Frankenstein name stuck in my head. So when we walked home from the theater, it was just a couple of blocks away from where we lived. Uh, I said, "Who, who, or what is Frankenstein?" And my mother said, "Oh, that was uh, it was a movie about a man who came, who they brought back to life, and and that just resonated with me. And for years, you know, this is in the days before we had home video and the monster magazine. This would have been like uh, oh, early nineteen fifties. Um, you know, I used to, well, what did he look like? And, and 
you could, nobody could really tell me. I would get bits of information from different people. One person said, no, it wasn't a, a man that was brought back to life. It was a man that was put together from, from body parts. And somebody else said, well, he had a, uh, he had a flat head and a high forehead. Somebody else told me he had a nail going through his head. Well, what, what they were referring to, I imagine, were the electrodes on the neck. So all these little bits of information over the years kept coming together in my imagination. And one day I was walking home, and the only thing I, the only reference point I had was the old Dick Briefer comic books, which were, which are the horror series, which were coming out on the newsstands back then. And I was walking home from school one day and I passed a, a confectionery store. It was getting close to Halloween and they had a bunch of masks hanging in the window. And one of them, I looked at it and it had certain resemblances to that comic book character, but it also had the the electrodes which looked like bolts on the neck mm-hmm. and it was a greenish color. It was the old half Don Poe's half face Frankenstein mask. So I went into the store and I didn't say, I didn't ask them, uh, is that a Frankenstein mask in the window? I said, I want to, how much, how much is the Frankenstein mask in the window? <laughs> and they knew exactly what I was talking about. And ever since then, uh, so I bought it. It was a dollar and 80 cents. I'll never forget a dollar 80 cents. And, um, uh, you know, ever since then, it's just been something, a character and a theme and everything that, uh, um, I really, I, I've been interested in, I, uh, I, I love the whole idea. And, you know, I was asked once, I was doing a, an interview with the BBC and the BBC wanted to ask me the standard question. Why do people identify with the monster? And I, and I stopped to think about that and stopped to think and I, and I was ready to give the old cliche standard answer. Well, you know, we're all awkward as teenagers and we're <laughs> trying to fit into the world and all that sort of thing. I said, wait a minute. That wasn't the case with me at all. I never really identified with the monster. I, I identified with, with, with Victor, the scientist, because he was actually creating things, doing things. And, and that's what I've been doing all my life, doing, you know, making things and uh, writing stories and artwork and making movies and all kinds of things things I wanted to put together myself. And that's what, um, I mean, I didn't want to be guilty of all the things he was guilty <laughs> right. of in the story, but I, but I, but I, you know, I, I, I wanted to do things. I didn't want to be the one that was put upon like the monster was, you know? And, uh, so I don't know if that answered your question, but that's the, the best answer I can give to that. Uh, I've, ever since I was a little kid about, you know, six or seven years old, it, it's been a fascination with me. And, um, uh, and so I've, a lot of my professional life has been involved with things Frankensteinian, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and I'm, I'm fortunate, you know, I was really lucky to be able to do something I really loved and make a, a living off of it. Right. I think it's really fascinating though, that all of those stories that people were telling around you, well, appropriately created a Frankenstein's monster out of <laughs> Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> So that yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, even like, making a, even making a, even making a movie, you know, it's uh, those amateur movies were, you know, when we were still shooting on film, as opposed to today where it's all digital. But in those days, it, they were made up of pieces of film put together to make a whole, you know, from from various parts, and uh, it, it all kind of ties together. Yeah, no doubt. So, so do you have a favorite 
like portrayal of the the doctor slash baron uh or or even the creature like going back through all of the media that you've consumed and created all of your life like can well you say the scientists uh, yeah the scientists certainly uh it would be peter cushing i, I think he was okay. just excellent yeah, i mean he was nothing like the character in the book <laughs> but you know that doesn't, he created his own uh, to use the word his own character and uh uh he was brilliant as Baron Victor Frankenstein in in those movies. The monster, I'm, you know, I'm still, uh, you know, Karloff is way at the top of the list, but I, I admired other portrayals. I liked Glenn Strange very much. Like Glenn Strange, I knew personally. And, um, you know, people put down Lance Cheney Jr.'s portrayal, but uh, I think what he was doing in that movie was uh emulating his father because that's basically a, a silent movie role that he's doing he doesn't make any sound he doesn't go or any of that right. he, it, it's all it's all just with mime and gestures and that sort of thing and uh Lugosi's i did not like at all really um i mean i, I like the fact that it was he had the makeup and everything and he was and he was the character but his portrayal of the character always seemed even as a kid when i saw that i thought he uh he just came up across as as weak i remember standing in line i was i was standing in line at the uh, biograph theater which is where um john dillinger was shot the gangster and i was standing in line with a friend of mine and waiting to get in with a bunch of kids and it was a triple bill of frankenstein meets the wolfman the Atomic Monster, which was really the reissue of Man-Made Monster with Lon Chaney, and The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. You couldn't ask for a better triple bill as a kid. Right. And we were looking at the uh, the reissue lobby cards uh, in the window as they were standing in line. And um, it, there were pictures of Lugosi, and uh, there was also a, a, one of the shots of the stuntman, uh, Gil Perkins, carrying you know, Elona Massey. And we didn't see that one first. We saw the Lugosi because as the line was moving, we were seeing more pictures, more lobby cards. And the ones of Lugosi, we just, there's something wrong about that. I did, it, we didn't know it was Lugosi playing the monster yet. I mean, those was in the days where we sort of learned things and figured things out as we went along, you know. <laughs> and this is this was before Famous Monsters, the film then came out. And so I was, he looks, we, we, we said he looks kind of weak. There's something wrong with him. He just doesn't look strong. And then we came across that picture of Bill Perkins, still not knowing who was playing the part. And we just, now there he looks really good. There he looks great. And that and um, and so uh, uh, yeah, I would say Peter Cushing definitely for the Baron, and um, uh, Boris Kala for the for the original monster. But I really liked. Uh, Glenn Strange. Yeah, I just wish he had more to do in those movies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We just recently watched those and kind of said the same thing. Like I always, I always remembered liking Glenn Strange, and then when I watched the movie, I realized he, they don't. I mean, he's barely in him at all. I mean, right. he does well with what yeah. he's in, but he's not given much. No, he probably got a lot of rest in those movies, just <laughs> sleeping on right. that platform. I would think. <laughs> hey, getting paid to sleep—that's all right, right? <laughs> Yeah, you know when we shot, when we did Tales of Frankenstein, there was a, we had a scene in a morgue, mm -hmm. <laughs> and the actor playing the corpse of the the professor, uh, well, he, he was stretched out on a table, you know, and and we're talking, and we're getting the scene all set up, and and suddenly we hear this, 
<laughs> snoring sound. <laughs> and we said, where's that coming from? And it was, he, he fell asleep on the slab with, with, the, with the sheet over him. That's <laughs> Uh, so that is amazing. I love it. You saying that that you more identify with the the monster or with the uh, the Baron kind of makes sense after watching Tales of Frankenstein. Like I feel like uh, you know there's a between like Universal kind of feels like it focuses on the monster, whereas Hammer focuses more on the uh, on the Doctor. And I definitely feel like Tales of Frankenstein is more about the creators and the the Doctors rather than the creatures. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I didn't want to just rehash um, all the old Universal and, uh, tropes. I didn't want to remake the original story because that's been done for, you know, I, and with, on budgets I could never afford, <laughs> you know. I, I didn't want to compete with those. But I wanted to keep the style of um, uh, the Universal and Hammer films as much as I could, except for one of the stories. I, nobody ever seems to pick up on this, but... The, the one about the crawling hand, that really was my <laughs> homage, if you want to call that, to Roger Corman's Poe films oh. with a little bit of uh, Lovecraft thrown in. <laughs> um, so that's what that was all about. We had all the dream sequences and the cutaways to black cats and ravens and all that sort of right? thing. And, <laughs> uh, and so that was, yeah, well, that was supposed to kind of look like a, a Poe film. And um, and then, of course, with the, the one with the gorilla, that was... Uh, you know, my 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 version of a film noir, old dark combination of film noir and old dark house movie. Right. But um, you got to remember that that movie was based on four of my short stories that were already published. So I wasn't really attempting in the movie to do a movie, uh, you know, highlighting or emphasizing the scientist. I do. I was just taking those stories that had already been written and already published years ago, uh, with not much of any connection to each other, and and adapt them to uh, to the screen. So I wasn't consciously thinking of that. Um, you know, I, I was trying to give as much variety as I possibly could too. Uh, so uh, the original monster only really appears in that frame story and those flashback cuts that. I, 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 you know, so so get my money's worth out of the character and the makeup and the actor. I kept cutting and to remind people that it was a Frankenstein movie. I, would, I kept having those those flashbacks. Right, right. So, so in addition to that, so obviously you wrote basically all the stories that are in the movie, Tales of Frankenstein. Right. Um, Correct. Like, how did you go about choosing them? Did you say these are my well, best I, or? No, I, 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 I originally, see, originally somebody else was going to do this movie, but it, it, that didn't work out. And that's when I chose the stories. And I, I went through the, the, the collection and I wanted to see which would be the most visual stories, the ones that would work best as movies. And, you know, some of those, you know, a couple were set in the future. Well, if I did those, then I'd have to have all kinds of special effects and things that I couldn't afford. Uh, so I, um, there was another one that had a copyright issue. I was, uh, it was about two guys who, from a movie studio, who <laughs> encountered the real Frankenstein monster sleeping in a, up in the mountains somewhere. And they want to make sure that the makeup doesn't, uh, you know, uh, look too closely like 
too close to the ones that are going to be in their movie because it might be a copyright issue. Well, I didn't want to add that story in there because I didn't want to raise any red flags with Universal you know, <laughs> with yeah. my movie. Yeah. So I, so there, so there were all kinds of. Uh, um, there was another one with gangsters, and that really, uh, you know, for the first one, for the first movie, and I intended to make more. I, I do intend to make more. Uh, I wanted them to be the, the four stories that were different from each other and set in different time places, periods, and different locations, and um, that, that would work the, the best visually. And so those are the ones I took. And uh, originally it had five stories. It had that gangster story. But as my editor uh, got into it, we were up and we were doing the second story. And he said, I think this movie's going to run a lot longer than you figure. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I've already got so much of it cut. And uh, it looked like it's going to be long. So the way the movie ended up being, it's like, it's like, an, it's almost two hours long. It's an hour, one hour, I think it's an hour and 50 minutes, 50 minutes. Mm -hmm. And if we let, let the, uh, if I had done that fifth story, it would have made it way over two hours. It's just way too long for a movie like that. And I was kind of glad because by not including that fifth story, I saved a lot of money and a lot of time because I didn't I didn't have to shoot it. And it was set in the castle, so I would have to rent the castle and uh you know, a lot of it was shot outdoors at night. So um in a way that was a blessing in disguise. But if I do a second movie, I've already written the script for it. That gangster story is also uh, is already included in it. So um uh, that's how I picked those four. It was mainly based on what what to me would be the most uh, cinematic, right. and uh, and those are the ones uh, I those are the ones I uh, I chose. Yeah, I mean, you definitely succeeded. We're uh, we've been doing this show for a couple months now. We've watched uh, twenty or so Frankenstein movies at this point for the show, and mm -hmm. they do kind of start to get similar in a lot of ways. You know, there's there's a lot of beats that keep appearing over and over again, but we had so much fun watching Tales of Frankenstein yeah. because every segment was very unique and and. Uh, you know, it, it it had a lot of stuff that was familiar, but not done in a very repetitious way. You know, they, there were, uh, you know, like one thing we always talk about is the the spinning, the, the Faraday wheel. We call it the spinning science wheel. Um, yeah, the dynamo. Yeah. <laughs> and you had those in every every single one of the segments. And, and we loved that. Um, but, yeah, it, it had the, the visual style. So it was familiar, but it wasn't, or, you know, didn't feel like it was repeating exactly what we've seen before. Yeah. I, I really, I really, I was thinking about the wheels. I really, really made a, an attempt to get the uh, strict fatten machines from the first, from the Universal movies. I saw them. You know, I, I knew Ken strict fatten when he was well, when he was alive, and uh, I saw those m machines uh, working. He had a he had a get together at his studio once, and he had all the machines going, and you, you could feel the electricity in the air, but, you know, he's been dead now, I've ever gone out, I don't remember how many years, but I couldn't track them down, <laughs> and every place, you know, uh, that I was directed to where they were seen last, you know, uh, were, um, uh, ended up as a dead end, and I had a friend who I hadn't seen in about 20 years, who was a closer, a very close friend of Ken Strickland, and he had one of the gadgets. But the, oh, yeah. Yeah, by the time I finally reached him, we were already uh, about like going to shoot the next day or something. But finally, when I reached him, it turned out um, it was in storage someplace in 
uh, where in Detroit where he grew up. So I was never able to get those. So we just faked all that stuff. A lot of that laboratory stuff we shot on my dining room table. There's a lot of light. I, I went around the garage and drawers in the kitchen. Every light bulb I could find that had some color to it. <laughs> we just piled on the table and we got close-ups of all these things. And, um, you know, that's how the uh, electricity, uh, the electrical gadgets came about. But you're right, the wheel, uh, that we had actually two wheels. One was an actual, an actual working model. And I, I, I ran into a guy at a science fiction convention who had like a display and uh, all these different kinds of things, and we uh, he let us use them. So, but some of the things we built, the bigger spinning wheel was a um, something my prop guy uh, devised or built. And then we went to a prop house and looked around for anything we could find that you know that looked scientific and you could turn on and turn off. Unfortunately, most of that stuff that I saw in like ten years ago in various places just didn't exist anymore and the places didn't exist i would go in there and say yeah i remember i was here oh we that was somebody else who rented the space and they don't live here they don't work here anymore and we have no idea where they went so it's amazing we got the 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 laboratory uh equipment that we did get and so much so much was just kind of faked i found a few stock shots of things blinking on and off and i included that and and then uh same with lightning i wanted to really get the old lightning that you see in bride of frankenstein and one shot that they used over and over and over again in movies and television shows you know and that was really tough finding that because everything now is in color and widescreen and digital and all this and i did track it down it only cost me, I think, $23 to use it. And so that was a, uh, an investment that, where I really got my bang for my buck, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Uh, you got a talent for, uh, you know, making the most out of, you know, like even, you know, I've watched some of your, uh, your uh, childhood movies and like you made the wheel with like a record player and stuff. So like, you know, clearly this was a step up from that. But what a re- Yeah, with a record, you know, there was a thing in the old Universal movies that were done in the 40s like in Frankenstein meets the wolf man, go, you know, goes to Frankenstein and those things where it was like a spinning neon light or something like that. Well, I couldn't do that. So the closest I could do was getting a, uh, a record turntable and painting kind of a, a spiral thing on it and then just spinning it with my hand. And then I had a blinking light. I found that you could go to the hardware store and buy a, a circuit breaker thing, which was called a flasher. And it was just, take the bulb out of the socket, drop the thing in the socket, then put the bulb back and you turn it on, it will flash on and off. So that spinning wheel, that record turntable, and that flashing light became like a traditional thing in all my amateur Frankenstein movies, every one of them. And uh, uh, it was, uh, it was, there's also a bone. I don't know if you ever noticed it. In fact, the bone is in Tales of Frankenstein. It's um, It was a bone I got, it was a bison, femur uh, that I got from a paleontologist at the Field Museum when I was a kid. And uh, I used that over and over and over again. I had one scene where in one of my amateur movies where Dracula is decomposing, you know, he's staked out and the sun is coming up and everything. And I, I cut to his leg and I, I took my pants and I put a, a, I had his bone sticking out of it. And it's in, um, 
it's in um, Pale of Frankenstein, if you look, in one of those laboratory shots. It's sort of my good luck charm, I guess. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, so I got to ask. So the, the props that you made uh, for the, namely the, listen, we're very big fans of the, the dynamos and as we call them, science wheels. So the ones that you have are for the Tales of Frankenstein. Where did they go? Does someone still have them? Do you know where they are? I have the big wheel in my garage. Okay. And all the light bulbs went back to the boxes and drawers I found them in, you know. <laughs> and uh, I, I think... Um, I think I have, yeah, I think I, I think I have all, all the actual props. Most of those things really weren't props. They were just light bulbs flashing on and off, you know? And I had to be careful that you, I didn't want to show the, the brand names or anything. Right. That, you know, uh, but, um, you know, we, and when, when I was making amateur movies, I, I even used uh, sparklers because they, to me, look like electricity sparking. And, um, I even one of them in Monster Rumble. I had a friend who had who got me a uh, eighteen thousand volt generator. I think it was, or I'm not sure. It was. Anyway, it created a spark, and we made a dummy of the teenage Frankenstein lying on the slab with the face all wrapped up and everything. And I hooked this thing up, and if you look really close, it's 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 really hard to see, but there's a big blue spark zapping the electrodes on the neck from this generator or whatever it was and that was real that was an and i actually built the jacobs ladder for that the trouble is a lot of that stuff didn't photograph well and people don't even realize what they're you know what they're looking at <laughs> so the, you said this the stories were all from uh so i know like i've read a i read the first uh new adventures of frankenstein uh book um i know and so one of the books is um is like a collection of short stories. Is that where they all came from? Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a collection of short stories called Tales of Frankenstein that's among, you know, I, I originally wrote the 11 books and one of the 11 books, number 10, was Tales of Frankenstein. Now there are 12 books because I, a few years ago, I decided to uh, bring the, the, the um, series to an absolute final end. And I had some complaints in one, in especially one of the reviews, that the last book in the series of the eleven, there was never one, there was never a one-to-one -one confrontation between the monster and Bert Winslow, Doctor Bert Winslow, who was the guy who brought him. In fact, Bert Winslow doesn't even appear in the last one. And they said they were missing that last thing. They, you know, they wanted something like Errol Flynn against Basil Rathbone in the Adventures of Robin Hood or something. That final one-on-one. -on -one you know, kind of confrontation. So I decided to write a, a 12th one. And since uh, Pope 2.0 Press was reprinting the books in, the, in those two big volumes that came out a few years ago, uh, 12 balance it out. You know, I have six books in one and six in the other. And so the publisher went with it and I wrote that last week. I didn't know if I could. It was like 40 years later that... Uh, since I'd written one, and I'll tell you, it was like the old story about getting back on a bicycle or something. It, was just, it just came out naturally, like nothing had changed. And uh, I don't particularly enjoy writing novels, but the, the Frankenstein one that I kind of did, and, and that one I had, I had a good time writing. Hmm. Yeah, I, I have the, uh, the, like, the ones that came out in like around 2000, so I don't have that 12th one. I'll have to try to pick up the, the bigger volumes so I can check those out. Yeah, and they're, and they're also, you know, because when they came out, when uh, 
they came out in those magazine forums, uh, and they're just loaded with embarrassing typos. Uh, editor never really uh, edited the things, and a lot of us, you know, when you're working on a computer, a lot of strange things can happen, you know, so there were some really embarrassing typos. So when they came out in the two volumes, I said, I want to be able to go through and catch all those typographical errors and things, and, you know, sometimes the two, the same word would, would turn up in the same sentence, you know, and, uh, and so they let me do that, and I think I caught pretty much everything, hmm. and um, so anyway, yeah, those are the two, those are two definitive, those two big volumes uh, are the ones to get if you're going to get anything, because uh, uh, they've all been corrected, and they're all there, all, all including the last one, the 12th one. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely pick those up. Yeah, no doubt. So let's let's kind of circle back around though. Going back to the movie. So you were talking about the the Frankenstein. You you cut back to the the Frankenstein monster a couple times. Like, did you have an alternate framing tale in mind, or was it just kind of you know we have the monster going through the piles of rubble? Well, well, those scenes are in the script. I mean, just doing kind of nondescript action when we. When we had the uh, uh, the actor Scott Frazina and make and makeup by John Goodwin, we were at a location that was very expensive, <laughs> and that was at that where, where the the first story is said, my creation, my beloved, and it and that that location was uh, it looked it had like a dungeon. I mean, it looked kind of like an old. It was actually supposed to be an, an abbey. It was built, I think, in the 1940s, and but it was very expensive, so we could only shoot there three days. And um, that's all I could afford. And uh, by the time we got to those scenes using the monster, by the time he was made up and we shot everything else for that day, uh, we only had like, we had less than an hour to shoot, less than an hour. All the stuff of the original Frankenstein monster, we're looking at the painting and going up and down the stairs and all that, that was shot in less than an hour. And, the, you know, the, wow. the, we couldn't shoot any longer because two things, the, the sun was going to go down and, and my, my, my rental fee and everything was going to go, was going to expire. <laughs> but then we had another problem. When, when the monster's coming down those stairs and going up the stairs, we rented a jib arm. Now, if you don't know what a jib arm is, it's kind of like a mini crane. And you put the camera on it and you get those great, what look like crane shots, but they're actually on the jib arm. The jib arm didn't work. So we were also confronted with the, the problem of not having a jib arm. But I wanted to get those shots because they were, to me, necessary to open the movie with, to give it kind of a, uh, a classy look, an expensive look. So we faked it. We had the camera, it was, it was, it was like handheld. We was holding the jib arm in a way and uh, that we could, we could give the illusion that it was shot with a jib arm, but we didn't have a jib arm, so it wasn't shot with a jib arm. There's another scene where, uh, sequence that was similar to that, where we went to, uh, uh, a location to shoot the, uh, tropical islands, uh, footage for the, the, uh, the one with the gorilla and the, uh, the Asian jungle girls and all that. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to have a scene where it ended with, um, uh, a pullback with, from the house going through the, the fence and all that to a, to a, a wide shot and I find out the cameraman did not rent any 
Dolly tracks. Oh, so oh, so how are we gonna do that? That was it was it's the climactic scene when we had the voiceover, you know, the private detective and his brain is in the gorilla's head and all this. So we faked that. We we shot that at uh, we did we we did it at high speed so we could slow it down and it was handheld. So it was like wow. just walking backwards with the camera. <laughs> to get that effect and we couldn't do I, I wanted to have some pan shots some dolly shots going past the house and everything that was all done from a car window we just got the cameraman in the backseat of the car and we drove by I mean it's amazing how we jury rigged so much that went on in that movie and nobody will ever know you know it's, <laughs> it's because my you know my one of my goals always in making movies no matter how cheap they were to make them look as expensive as you could possibly do. And a lot of people don't bother to making these low-budget films, and they look like those. They, they look cheap. But I wanted to get that kind of, you know, that, that hammer look, that kind of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm trying to think, that kind of Baroque look, you know, mm-hmm. that expensive, classy look. And um, and so I, I hope I achieved that. I hope we achieved that. Uh, but it, you, sometimes you can't imagine what people like me go through to uh, end up with anything on, on film, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, when you watch a lot of low-budget movies, you can tell the ones where it's like people just want to make some money quick, and then you can tell when somebody like you really cares about what they're doing and wants to make it as, you know, wants every penny on the screen and, and wants it just to look, you know, as, as good as it yeah. can for as little as possible. I mean, it's like a labor, like a labor, yeah, a labor of love pretty much, you know, because, you know, I know I would just like to make some money slowly, you know, let alone <laughs> quick, you know, yeah. but uh, yeah, I, I wanted, and I wanted to wait uh, on Tales of Frankenstein. I mean, I could have made this movie a long time ago. But I wasn't ready for it yet. And I was making those softcore vamp, lesbian vampire movies and things. And I, I didn't want, I didn't want to make it like that. And so I wanted to wait. And then what, what I found out was that the 200th anniversary of the publication of Mary Shelley's novel was coming up. So I said, why not? I'm going to make this now. Uh, I wanted to get the movie out, have it released the same year. So, you know, to coincide with that 200th anniversary, and we made it. You know, I uh, I got the idea a, few, a couple years earlier, so we had a couple years to play around with it and and do it without rushing things. You know, and um and we did it. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it turned out great. And yeah, I saw I saw the uh you know that you had like the dedication at the end about that. Yeah. So I, I saw like on your site it says that uh, you got Tales of Frankenstein two in the works, but uh, no, I was I was kind of discussing with you a little yesterday, and you said you have actually a couple of other Frankenstein-related projects you're yeah, working yeah. on. The, the, yeah, the, the movie, the second movie, uh, I have a script for. And, uh, you know, I mean, if somebody, if I had the money right now, I'd be, you know, I'd be <laughs> shooting it right now. But we, I don't have the money right now, and then with this pandemic thing, that sort of put a lot of things on hold. So, But I do have a script. And... Uh, other things that I'm doing right now, I mean, like literally <laughs> working on it today. <laughs> you know, I, I, do, I have two things. One is there's a, a publisher called Strange Particle Press that's been reprinting a lot of my old books. Mm-hmm. And one of the books they want to reprint, which is actually, I guess it's pretty much ready to go, is um, the Frankenstein Legend, which I wrote and came out in uh, 1973. 
you know, and I said, but you know, a lot has a lot has happened since 1973. I, I don't want to update the book because uh, that would take the rest of my life to do that. And there's been <laughs> so much Frankenstein related stuff, as you well know, since 1973. <laughs> Things I didn't particularly want to write about, you know. And I, uh, you know, I've written books like that in the past, and you spend most of your life working on those books. They don't really make a lot of money, and I would rather be doing something else, you know, going socializing or whatever. Anyway, so, uh, but also there were a lot of errors in the book because there were those, you know, that book was written before we had the internet, before we had home video. And a lot of the things were written by, uh, were, I, I, I assumed a lot of things, a lot of things uh, were second, you know, best educated guesses and things. So I wanted to deal with some of that stuff, like, uh, you know, who doubled the Gozi and, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and some of these things. So I'm, I've written a fairly detailed afterward that's going to go in the book hmm. with a lot of photos uh, that I didn't have before you know, of stunt and doubles and all that sort of thing. So that's a, the one project, the Frankenstein legend, which will be coming out in a brand new edition. The rest of the text will be at, at, as is, as it, as it originally came out in 1973, because there's a certain amount of nostalgia attached, attached to it, too. A lot of people said, oh, I had that book in the library when I was a kid, and I loved it, you know? Well, now they can have that same book, but with this section at the end that's added on, explaining away some of the errors and uh, misjudgments and, um, you know, correcting people's names and that sort of thing. The second one is another Tales of Frankenstein project. You know, I, I, I wrote a number of books relating to the movie. There was a book called uh, Tales of Frankenstein, the book of the movie. There was another one, Tales of Frankenstein, uh, photo, photo book, which is just photos. There was a, a graphic novel. Well, I was, <laughs> a couple weeks ago, I was trying to get to sleep. And for some reason, while I was in bed trying to doze off, I was starting to think about the old, um, you know, back in the 1960s, there was those Help Magazine, Harvey Kurtzman, published by um, uh, James Warren, who, who published the famous monster, the film land and creepy and vampirella and those things. And there were a lot of full page photographs with funny captions. And then I thought of the old Stan Lee's monsters to laugh with and uh, monsters unbound and all those things that he did, which was the same thing. And I knew Stan and Stan, one of the things Stan liked to do, really loved doing was writing funny captions to um, books, I mean, to, uh, to movie stills. And I said, you know, I bet that is one. Let me think about that. And then I woke up in the morning and I, after I had my coffee and fed my pets and did my exercise and all that, I sent an email to my publisher, uh, Strange Particle Press, and I said, would you be interested in the, you know, a book of nothing but photos from Tales of Frankenstein with funny captions? And within about 10 minutes, he said, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so um, it, it took me three days to put the whole thing together. And so that's going to be coming out. I don't want to give away the title yet because uh, it's a very cool title. And, you know, not that anybody's going to steal it or anything. I just, it hasn't been formally announced yet. So I think Tales, I think Frankenstein Legend will be coming out first. And then this, I mean, yeah, and then the Tales of Frankenstein with the funny captions will be coming out second. So those are the two things relating to Frankenstein that I've been most recently uh, involved with. 
Wow, that's that's really exciting. I've actually been trying to track down a copy of the Frankenstein legend and they're like, you know, with it being out of print, you can't find one for, you know, if you're yeah. lucky, you can find one for like 60 or 70 bucks, but they're usually a lot more than that even. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I don't know what they're going for now, but um, <laughs> yeah, I think I think everybody will, will be happy with uh, the afterward because so much is I clear up in that. And, um, and I've got some interesting pictures that people haven't seen before, or at least not many people have seen before so uh i'm um, yeah i'm waiting for that and then they're going to follow up i wrote two more books that the same publisher that followed frankenstein legend one was called the dracula book and one was called classic movie monsters and uh, they're going to do those after frankenstein legend wow yeah you stay busy yeah you're a busy man <laughs> Well, you know, it's uh, well. What else would we sit around watching television all day? Or you know, I, I, yeah, I, uh, I always find something to do, and um, uh, and I love working. You know, I guess you might say I'm a, a workaholic, but I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm always working on something. It seems like, you know, I got these websites um, that I'm constantly updating, and uh, so yeah, yeah. There's plenty to keep me occupied, even with the pandemic. <laughs> Even with the all the restrictions and everything that we got to endure not these days with the pandemic and everything, uh, I find plenty to do. <laughs> it's a secret to long life, right? Yeah, well, you know, I, I my birthday. I won't tell you how long, how what the number is. You can look it up online, probably. <laughs> it's coming up in about four days, oh, and wow. people, you know, I know. Yeah, now people that are, are so are much younger than me uh, who are retired, and I say, "What do you do all day?" And they say, "Oh." I watch TV. I put her around the garden, you know. Uh, and you know, I and they said, "Aren't you? Well, how, when are you going to retire?" And I said, "For me, retiring is what you do when you're on the freeway and you get a flat and you call the tri- AAA and they come and they retire for you." you know? <laughs> I love it. And that's true. I want to. I want to die working. You know, uh, on a set between the words action and cut. That's how I want to go. And. Um, uh, yeah, I can't imagine just sitting around doing nothing. I definitely yeah. respect that. Yeah, I mean, and if you you know if you were making movies when you were a kid, of course, yeah. I mean, like it's clearly a passion for you that you you know you'll do whether you're making money off of it or not. Yeah, and you know I'll tell you, um, I never. I this is an old story. You probably heard it, but I never really started out to be a movie maker or a writer or or anything. Um, I, uh, I I started making movies because. I would go to the theater. This is before, again, you know, video recorders and things. I would go to the movie theater and I would see a movie I really loved, like uh, Peace of 20,000 Phantoms or uh, when I saw my first two Frankenstein movies, which were House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. Up there on a big screen, I wanted to be, we had a 16-minute movie camera in our house and we had a camera and uh, they were, you know, we used for home movies, you know, vacations and birthdays and things. And uh, it's 16 millimeter. And I wanted to show those, show movies with those characters on our home screen, but you couldn't get any back then. So I figured the only way to do that was to make them myself. And I would get the kids in the neighborhood to dress up as Dracula and the Wolfman. And I usually would play the Frankenstein monster because I liked that character and I was the tallest of the kids. So um, that's how that all started. And then as I started making them, you know, I, I realized how much I enjoyed doing it. I never really thought that I would be doing it uh, 
professionally someday. And what I really wanted to do back then, if you want, I didn't really want to be an artist or a writer, or I wanted to be for a while a makeup artist. I got really inspired by the Man of a Thousand Faces movie. And I took out Lon Chaney's books for the library and all that. And I got inspired by magic, like the movie Houdini with Tony Curtis. And all. But I really, in my heart of hearts, what I really wanted to be back then was a rock star. Oh, and, you know, I would see these television shows with, you know, Elvis and, and the girls screaming in the audience and all that. I said, that's what I want. That's what. And for years, uh, you know, I was in the music business playing you know, guitars and things. And uh, the other things I kind of stumbled into, I've, I've, I've always had really good luck being in the right place at the right time. And it turned out that when all the smoke had cleared and some of the other things no longer seemed possible, um, I, could make, I could make a living off writing. And one thing kind of led to another and writing comic books and novels and nonfiction books and movie scripts, television shows, just one thing kind of segued into the next, you know, and um, a lot of people don't take advantage of these strange opportunities that come up, and uh, I did, every time, an op- I never let an opportunity pass me by, and, you know, they're never, you never lose an opportunity to just pass on to the next person, sure. and uh, I was really fortunate that my whole life has been basically uh, making a living off what other people would call hobbies, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I don't really have any hobbies. <laughs> I did when I was a kid, you know, but they all, I, I was all, always able to, to uh, turn into some kind of a job, you know? Oh yeah. It definitely sounds like you're living the dream. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, out of all, all of the, the works that you've done, like you, you're not never supposed to choose your favorite child. But if you, I'm sorry. No, you're never supposed to do what? Choose your favorite child? Well, you're never supposed to let, you know, let the world know who your favorite child is. I I think is the same. But if you, if you, if you were to say this one work of mine is my favorite thing, which one would that be? Well, it would probably be, you know, it's hard to say because, because I'm all over the map when it comes to things. Uh, As far as writing goes, Probably what I'm most proud of is uh, is the series of dinosaur encyclopedias I wrote years ago, and they're up to eight volumes, uh, and very, you know, uh, semi-technical, or you want to call them technical works, but I put a lot of time and effort and love into those. What I'm most proud of, though, has nothing to do with uh, any of this stuff. The, the, the things I'm most proud of professionally were my music. When I was in, uh, in one of those, I was in a rock band in the 60s called the Penny Arcade that uh, Mike Nesmith, who was one of the monkeys, was our, he was our producer. Right. And then later on, the years I was with a uh, uh, comic book artist named Pete Von Charlie, we did a lot of dinosaur-related rock songs called Dinosaur Tracks. We did three albums. And, uh, and I know I just have, I get the most pleasure and the most pride and the most uh i just feel that's when i'm like up there on a stage with a guitar or something singing into a microphone uh i don't get all the girls screaming like elvis did but you know it it just the the whole musical experience for me is is the best yeah i definitely understand that i i have a hobby of playing music too that it has never gone anywhere but it is just it's it's always fun to to play around 
Yeah. yeah. But as far as movies go that I wrote, uh, Tales of Frankenstein is certainly at the top of the list because uh, it was really a movie I, want, I, want, <laughs> I wanted to see. I found that, that oh, you know, through my entire life, the things that seemed to work best for me and to be the, the, the best received by critics and fans and things are things that I really wanted to read or watch or something, but nobody had bothered to do them. Right. And um, just like this Frankenstein legend book, when I, when I wrote that, uh, I, one of the reasons I wrote it is because I wanted to read it, but nobody had written the book like that. Right. So I decided to do it myself. Those are the days where, you know, there weren't, no, I mean, now there's thousands of books on horror films and things. There was like one or two back then. Carlos Clarence and his illustrated uh, history of the horror film, whatever it was called. Uh, that was that was the only game in town, pretty much. And, uh, you know, um, so uh, nobody had done a book that I knew of, really, that was devoted to a specific character out of horror literature. That was one of the big problems. I, I mean, that book sat around, that manuscript sat around for several years before I got a publisher for it, because all the publishers said the same thing. Who's going to want to read a book about Frankenstein? A whole book about Frankenstein. <laughs> and I said, well, it's not just about the novel, it's about you know the movies and the comic books and the records and stage plays. They, they, they just couldn't see it. Right. And, they, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, But I wanted to read that book, so I sat down and wrote it myself. And um, lo and behold, when Scarecrow Press took it, uh, it turned out to be one of their best sellers. Wow. You know? And so they just jumped at doing two more, the Dracula book and classic movie monsters. And um, nowadays, you know, you get, you get hope. You get books devoted to one movie or <laughs> to one Star Trek character or something, you know? It's, uh, it's a whole different world, but it's opened up a lot of things. Yeah. Definitely has, and I, yeah, I, I I love when something is very focused where you get to really. I mean, that's kind of why we're doing this show. Is I yeah. wanted there to be a podcast that was just about Frankenstein so that I could listen to it, and there wasn't one, so I was like, all right, I guess we're going to make this. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah I mean, even other books I've done too, like you know, uh, the Dinosaur Dictionary came out that way. I wanted to read that book, and nobody wrote it. True Vampires of History, the same thing, and. Um, and then it's, you know, another thing is if somebody did it, they wouldn't be as obsessive about it as me. So they wouldn't do, they wouldn't put all the little details and all that sort of thing. And then I would be all angry, you know, <laughs> why, why didn't I do it? Cause now, now he's killed the market by putting out his book. Nobody's right. going to want to do another book about the same subject so, so soon. And, um, yeah, if you, if you want to do it and, and do it right then when you get the idea, because if you don't, Somebody may beat you to it with a, an inferior version of it, you know. And uh, so you got to do do it yourself. A lot of people get these ideas, but they never go anywhere. They never do anything. Mm -hmm. That's like what you were saying. I know about people you have been take talking. Up the opportunities. Yeah, when they're presenting. Yeah. Right, and I know people that have had ideas for television shows and things like that, and movies and novels, and they've been talking about them for 20 years. Right. And uh, nothing ever happened. They don't sit down and write. I guess it's a scary thing for people to sit down at uh, a computer or a typewriter, as we used to have you know, years ago, and actually start something. How do you start it? 
And then when it's, a lot of people don't want it to end because when it's over, it's over. They, they might have one project in their head with no idea what they're going to do next. And so they don't really want it to end because then suddenly, what are you going to do? Right. And uh, I've known plenty of people like that. Or a lot of people will um, be discouraged by the, the right to first novel or so or whatever, and they'll send it out and they'll get rejected. And the rejection has nothing to do with the quality of the novel. It might have to do with what day of the week it came in. Maybe the, the editor wanted to uh, go home for the weekend, you know, so he doesn't give it a real fair reading. Or it came in at the beginning of the week and you got all the stuff piled up from the, over the weekend and he doesn't have time and he just sends it all back. Or like an actor, um, uh, an actor who wants to get a job in a movie and the, and the casting person there or the director who's ever doing the, the casting, the producer, um, will, you know, the person will come and, and has red hair and, and they just hired an actor with red hair. So they're not going to put two redheads in the, the same movie, especially if they're going to be the leading man, the leading lady, it would be ridiculous. And so the, they don't get the job. And then they go home and they think, oh, I, you know, I'm not worth anything. I didn't like my, my audition, yada, yada, yada. And they never try again. So there's all kinds of reasons people get their, their, their work rejected. It has nothing to do with, you know, with their personal worth. And uh, a lot of people just don't under, and it just never sinks in with a lot of people. And, um, and, and they never pursue the career. And a lot of people, like most of my relatives and friends in Chicago where I grew up, never get, never, it never solidifies for them it's just a hobby. So it's, it's you know, they'll take a job when they're the, in the, in the bagging at the, at the supermarket, you know, for that security. And, um, um, you know, they, they never pursue the, the art or the writing or the, or the music or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, and I mean, all they need to do is take a look at your career and see like what, you know, uh, hard work and perseverance can, can do for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I, yeah, it, to me, failure was, I mean, I, you know, a lot of things I got rejected years and years ago. And, uh, but, the, you know, the alternative, you know, back in the 1970s, I made a good part of my living writing for the teen magazine, you know, writing about all the Cassidy and, and, you know, uh, Michael Jackson, all these people make enough stuff. And, you know, none of it was true, but, um, <laughs> to me, writing something I didn't like or didn't enjoy was way better than working like in an office someplace right. yep. or, <laughs> in, or in a warehouse, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a no brainer. I would rather be, Doing something that I liked, which was the process of writing, even though it was about something I had no interest in, you know, like a lot of those Saturday morning cartoons and things, which were terrible. <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, you know, I would rather be doing that than you know driving a taxi cab or something, you know, working <laughs> sure. in a in a factory. Definitely yeah. spoken like an artist. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that hundred percent. Well, I know we told you we, we'd just keep you for an hour and we're getting close to that. So I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, I, uh, one, one question though, I did want, so, you know, Frankenstein obviously has been around for a long time. Um, where, where do you see like Frankenstein stories going in the future? Well, I don't know. That just depends on the, the, uh, 
writer's imagination, I guess. I, I, you know, I tend to like the old gothic, gothic classic types of things that were done in, at Universal and Hammer Films. And, and uh, I, I personally have written a couple that, uh, in uh, Tales of Frankenstein collection of short stories, there are several there that are set in the future, way in the future. And that caused me a problem because when I wrote those stories, I never thought I was going to do a 12th novel. <laughs> and when I was doing the 12th novel, I wanted to end it, you know, on a real final note. But then I remembered, hey, I have this story in the Tales of Frankenstein collection where these aliens find the Frankenstein monster, you know, uh, in the in a, in a ruined earth, you know, and crush it by, I think it was lava or something. So I've got to write a story. I, my 12th story has to end in a way that, that it ties in with with the short story because right. I wanted to have continuity. <laughs> and, and that caused me some, I, I figured it out. You know, I, I'm good at that sort of thing, figuring out these problems. <laughs> but I did that. And uh, and that was set way in the future. And uh, I did another one with an android um, that uh, was set in the future. And I think the more the computer that was set in the, So that's where my stories went. I, I've already done that sort of thing. I've already explored those uh, ideas, but I'm not a science fiction writer. I'm not one of the ones, you know, the ones that are much revered at conventions and things. So I, I, and I haven't read in really enough of it to be a science fiction writer, enough science fiction. So I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't want to get too involved in that and, and all that. So, um, but to me, the, the ones I wrote said, it was just more of a gimmick thing. And as I said, when I wrote the one, I never, I think it was called If One Survived. I never thought that I would be making writing a 12th novel. So I, I had to figure all that out. And in the 12th novel, there were some more things. You know, I'm, I'm of the, I guess, conceit, you might say, that most of the stories that I've written, no matter who they were for, Marvel, DC, my own, you know, Gold Key Comics or whatever, that they all take place in the same universe. So I had written comic book stories with the Frankenstein monster for Marvel, uh, for Gold Key, and and I so in the this last Frankenstein novel I wrote, which is called Frankenstein: The Final Horror, I actually have an explanation in a way that is kind of vague, and you kind of read between the lines, you know. So I don't, I don't want to get sued by Marvel Comics. Or anything. <laughs> right. Yep. <laughs> uh, if you read between the lines, it, it's, I explain how all these stories could have happened in the same universe. Wow. And uh, that's the kind of thing I really have a lot of fun doing. I, I have little clues planted all over, not only the Frankenstein novels, but in other things I wrote. And, uh, where, you know, there'll be, uh, the name of the same museum or the same book. There's this book I came up with called The Ruth Venian which was uh, like the vampire's Bible. It was like their Necronomicon, you know? Okay. And that turns up everywhere. If you, if you, if you read uh, some of the comic, even for, uh, you know, companies like Archie, you know, <laughs> you know and, and that keeps turning up. And some people now, because those, some of those, like especially the Gold Geek comics, weren't popular when they first came out in the 70s, People now who are older are, are discovering those comics or rediscovering those comics or these old short stories. And some of them are actually starting to piece together this, 
unifying what they call what some people call the glutiverse. All these little these little things that tie them all together. I've even made movies where uh, these things are mentioned. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I'm having a good time. I'm, uh, I'm I'm running a lot of stories now for. Uh, Shutter and um, Vampirus Carmilla magazines, and I haven't done too much of the crossover stuff in there. But you know, sometimes I'll be on the on the wall. You'll see a, a poster for one of my movies or something. <laughs> <laughs> so it all ties together, and, and I have a real I have a real good time doing that. I love that. Yeah, it makes it more fun to. It's like a scavenger hunt as you go through your career. Yeah. Um, well, I, I like to. You know, I like to be kind of a mysterious character, like a Buckaroo Banzai type, where certain people only know me from certain areas. People <laughs> know me only from the music business, or only from the paleontology world, or only from Frankenstein or horror films. And then they find out I did something that's totally unrelated, you know, and they and they can't figure it out. So I like to keep uh, a little aura of mystery about myself if I can. There you go. <laughs> yeah, as I've been reading about all your Frankenstein stuff, and then I kept seeing stuff about Dinosaur Dawn, and I was like, "Wait, that's the same guy?" Huh? Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that was that was the name. You know, I had a Marvel because uh, they were everybody had a nickname back then in the seventies, like Smiling Stan Lee, <laughs> Rascally Roy Thomas, and all that. And uh, Roy, who was I was doing a lot of the writing for, said, "What would you like to be called?" And I said. Dinosaur Don. That's what I've been called since sixth grade in grammar school. And so that's that kind of stuck. And it had a nice alliteration, the two Ds, you know, so <laughs> yeah. that worked out well. And comic books love those alliterative names. Right. Yeah, I did, yeah and Stan loved those too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's amazing, sir. I, I do have to tell you that you, all throughout most of your career, at least as far as comic books, Saturday morning cartoon shows, and now even with Frankenstein related things, I, I allow me to gush and say that you are my, one of my heroes. <laughs> oh, love. Oh, thank you. Where, where are you guys located by the way? We're in like Louisville, Kentucky area. Yeah. Oh, Kentucky. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yes, sir. I thought you were in New York because you said, you know, it's the East coast, I think. So <laughs> when we asked, I asked about the time, uh, Kentucky. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we're still in the Eastern Time Zone, but yeah, we're we're closer to Chicago than we are to New York, I'd say. <laughs> right. Oh, oh, oh. Well, you don't have any accent or anything, so uh, oh. that threw me off too. <laughs> you are best tied enough. <laughs> so. yeah. That flat Midwestern accent is just kind of. Right. Yeah, it's pretty subtle. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we, we can't thank you enough. This is, this has been so much fun. It's, it's been a real treat to get to, to talk with you. Um, you know, possibly I don't know when we came across my, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know if it came across my voice, but I've had a smile from ear to ear the entire time. So. <laughs> Me <Yep>. too. What? <laughs> so we've both been grinning ear to ear this whole conversation. Full time. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, I remember this, you know, the Abbott Costello routine where uh, Abbott says, uh, smiling makes a man look stupid. And Costello says, I smile all the time. And Abbott says, see what I mean? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so be careful. Right? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Well, so thank, thank you again. Thank you so much. And, you know, maybe when you've got some of these other projects coming out, you know, uh, we might be able to get you back on to talk about them. We'd love that if, if you had time. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always uh, always around. So, uh, yeah, I'd be glad to, um, uh, you know, and this was a, a nice conversation. Who else have you had on the show so far? Um, we haven't really had many guests. It's mostly just been us chatting about movies. Um, we've had. Uh, we've had a couple of people for or another guy from another podcast who came on and just talked with us about a movie, but you're really our first like top tier guest. So, uh, so we're really excited about it. Oh, thank you. It, it's, yeah, it's been fun. I love to talk about these things, especially when I don't get to talk about the same old stuff all the time, you know, which is, <laughs> which is nice. And, uh, and we had a lot of, uh, we had a lot of, a lot of different things we talked about, which, which I enjoyed. Well, good. Yeah, anytime you want to talk about Frankenstein, we are available. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, Joe, you know, um, I'm glad you liked my movie. Uh, it did win the uh, Rondo Award 2018 for Best um, Independent Film. And uh, the reviews have been, uh, except for one, every review has been really, really, really good. And, uh, and one, it was just somebody obviously had an issue with me or something. <laughs> And, and uh, so, so I'm 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 really happy with the way it turned out, and it, it you know could have you when you're watching it you always see things that could have been better or that you didn't have because the prop didn't show up or whatever you know in a way you have to sort of make up for that in some way. But I I work best a lot when I'm pushed into a corner, and you know the actor hasn't shown up or the prop hasn't shown up or you got to cut out ten pages of your script or whatever, and that's when I seem to work the best when I'm under pressure like that. So, uh, but yeah, it was fun and I had some good actors. I, I try to stay away from all the standard B movie actors, you know, that you see all the time. And, uh, uh, I think I had a pretty respectable cast, you know, like Jerry Lacey from dark shadows Ann Robinson and Beverly Washburn. And, um, even the, the lesser actors, I, I didn't use any of the people that have, uh, that can make your movie the kiss of death. You know, they see a certain, oh, that person only does lousy B movies. You know, they don't even give it any consideration. So uh, I really lucked out there and I looked out with some good, nice locations too. So, I mean, some of them cost me. That car, that car in the, in the, in the madhouse of death, that car costs for two shots of it, just kind of one, you know, or maybe one shot. Uh, it cost me eight hundred dollars. Oh wow! And and I and I said to myself, you know, I could go the way of low budget movies and um, just have just start out that segment with the private detective walking with a gas can in his hand. Obviously, his car was somewhere. You don't see it, but he he ran out of gas. You know, mm-hmm. and he knocks on the door. But that would be the cheapest way. <laughs> and to me, having that that um, car actually drive by with the actor in it and then getting out of the car and all that, that to me was worth 800 bucks. And you know, you know who was the most expensive actor in that movie? <laughs> the gorilla. I'm not going to tell you how much it cost me, but getting that gorilla suit and somebody to play it and he had an assistant and everything, uh, that was the most expensive, <laughs> expensive actor. You know, <laughs> I, so. can, I can see that because we, we've seen some pretty cheap gorilla suits and that did not look like a cheap gorilla suit. That looked like, no, a- that was, that was, that was actually used in, uh, uh, what was that? I think that John Landis movie. They had a gorilla in it. I forgot what it was. 
coming wow. home or something like that. Anyway, wow. so that was that gorilla suit. Yeah, wow. and I looked because I want I wanted a gorilla. I you know it's it set in 1948, so I didn't want to like a, a, a gorillas in the mist kind of state of the art, super realistic looking gorilla. I wanted the old Crash Corrigan. Um, Charlie Gamora kind of gorilla, but you know you, you can't find people that have suits like that anymore. You know, so it was really it's really uh, tough finding a gorilla suit and and, a, and the person inside of it. <laughs> oh, making movies is so much fun. I got to tell you, we go through all these strange strange problems. You know. <laughs> well, it definitely sounds like you worked your way around them, regardless of what they were. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So. Okay, listen, anytime you guys want to call me back, uh, don't be shy, you know? Yes, sir. All right, we definitely will. Thank you so much. And send me a link when this is up and running so I can put it on uh, Facebook and my web, my website and everything. Absolutely. We definitely will, sure. All right, well, you okay. have a good night. Yep. All right, you too. Thanks okay. a lot. Okay, right, bye. Thank you. Bye. But as always, to be continued. FCR Media. It's hosted by Anthony Bowman and Eric Velasquez. Follow us on Twitter at The Frankencast or send us a letter at thefrankencast at gmail.com. Our cover art is by Amanda Keller. You can find her at Keller Illustrations on Instagram. Our theme music is by Vivek Abhishek. Thanks for listening.